Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, November the 23rd, 2022. Regular viewers of the show know that a few days ago, um, we... Keenan and myself were at the Techonomy 22 show. Uh, my old friend David Kirkpatrick's wonderful show about this convergence of technology, economics, and morality. The title of it uh, this year was Innovation Must Save the World, a, a stirring, appropriate title. We did a couple of interesting interviews there, one with Peter Rawlinson, the CEO and founder of Lucid Motors, about the possibility of self-driving cars, saving, uh, helping save the world. Another with Lucas Jopper, the former sustainability, chief sustainability officer at Microsoft about the role of technology in saving the world. And one of my favorite presentations at Techonomy this year was by my old friend, Michael J. Wolf, on uh, how we use media and how our use of media can help in terms of innovation. Uh, saving the world. Michael is joining us from his home in New York City today. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here and great to join you. So, Michael, before we get to how we how how innovation can help save the world when it comes to media use, you gave a very interesting presentation at Techonomy this year about how we are using media. Lots of talk by people who don't know much about this stuff on YouTube versus TikTok versus Instagram versus Facebook versus the New York Times.com. But you at Activate uh, know a lot about this. You're a longtime senior media uh, executive. You worked at MTV and many other organizations. So perhaps very briefly, you might, um, you might remind our audience who didn't have the good fortune to be at Techonomy about what you told the Techonomy audience uh, a, a few days ago. I, I mean, a couple of things are important about the growth of of media and, and its impact on the overall tech business. Probably the most important is, is multitasking. When we break apart a 24-hour day and we look at multitasking, you end up with, sorry, when you break apart a 24-hour day, you end up with a 31-hour day if you add up multitasking. And of that, um, historically, um, it's been growing. Of that, it was about 12 hours a day in terms of multitask media time. And so what I mean by multitask is you may be watching television, but at the same time you're on social media, you may be, um, you may be driving and you're listening to a podcast. It's, it's the multitasking. We end up with about 11 hours, 11 to 12 hours a day historically. Now what's happened through the pandemic is that jumped to over 13 hours a day and it's been sustained. People have expanded their use of technology and internet time and media and entertainment. And, um, and the results are, there's going to be a lot more opportunities. They just may not be the, the, the opportunities for the same set of people as in the past. How much of this, Michael, concerns you in terms of overload? We've done so many shows about distraction and uh, lack of sleep and addiction to media. In terms of the research you've done at Activate, how concerned are you? And I mean, at what point does multitasking hit a wall? We can't, I mean, we may do a 31-hour day, but we can't do a 
a hundred hour day, can we? Uh, you know, we're not going to do a hundred hour day, but, but it, it, it's the reality. I mean, people, time and attention is time and attention has become elastic. People are finding more and more ways to fit time in. When, when you look at if the average American is watching over five hours a day of video, historically that was television. Now it's split between television and digital video and some and social video. And, and, and you can understand that's on average. There are people who come home on, on and they just plop themselves in the front of the TV and they watch. And so the five hours on average could end up being somebody could be end up spending 30 hours. I mean, sorry, they, they could be end up spending eight hours a day on, on video or more. And all you have to do is watch a couple of games in the news and, and you spent that much. So I, I, I don't, I, I don't like to make a judgment about what, whether this is good or bad, but I, I do believe that what you're hoping is, is that people are taking in their, their, their media diet is, has other impacts for them. So for example, if you're using video games, the fact that video games are becoming more social means it's a way in which you're interacting with other people. Um, if you're, um, if you're watching the news then, and at the same time you're, you're on one of the social media sites. And again, that and you're sharing that news, you're sharing the video, it just changes the nature of the way that people experience um, internet and media and, and technology. How much is this breaking down um, in terms of demographic groups, uh, Michael, in terms of age? Uh, I have um, a couple of younger kids, actually not so young anymore, and certainly with my daughter, who's 21 uh, uh, in December, um, she certainly multitasks when it comes to video. Is this true of, of you, your and my generation, older people, people in their 50s and 60s? Are they multitasking video? They're, they're, they're multitasking. It's just that they're watching, they're watching more long-form video. They're watching video in a linear format. So they are turning on the television. And beyond just sports, they're watching, they're watching programming as it's programmed. Um, when you get into, it's not just Gen Z or Gen Alpha, you look at millennials and they're just much more comfortable. They, they, they can't imagine a video format that doesn't include something that they can skip and something that they can watch another time. So I don't believe, I believe that, that in a lot of ways you have younger viewers and younger users who are doing multiple things at the same time, but it's also going across to, to older demographics. Is TikTok the pinup company for media analysts like you? Is that the company, if you want to understand what's happening now and perhaps the near-term future, we need to look at TikTok. In contrast to a lot of the Silicon Valley companies, TikTok are hiring everybody else from Google to Facebook to Amazon uh, are laying people off. I mean, so TikTok's a phenomenon and, 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 and it has an impact across a number of different places. One is... It shows that people are willing to watch very, very short form video. And, um, and in the same way that Twitter showed that somebody was going to be satisfied with 140 characters and here they're satisfied with a short video. Um, but so that, that is impacting companies like YouTube and, and, and Facebook and others who have large amounts of video that people are watching in short form. Yes, it's having an impact on 
mainstream television and, and, and other video, but less so. In fact, if nothing more, TikTok is a barker for people to go and, and watch something on Netflix or watch something on HBO Max or Peacock. Uh, where TikTok becomes important is in social because it is taking away social time. And the way to think about this in a lot of ways is that social media, this is like most of these are like a big party and then the party moves on. And in the case of, of TikTok, in some ways, it's the party moving on from Facebook, some of it moving on from Instagram and other places. What I think is the most interesting about TikTok is how it's impacting other industries. So it is in, impacting e-commerce. It's um, so a lot of consumers are making their decisions about what to buy, where to go, where to travel based on TikTok. And, and most interesting is it's becoming a, a force in, um, in, in search because there are a lot of people who have changed their search patterns. They're going to other places first, but TikTok ends up being a place where you search for something and you don't just end up with text, you end up with a short form video that somebody has made. It's very authentic, it's very easy to use, and um, search patterns are changing anyways, but TikTok is gonna take advantage of that. TikTok's keeping up a, a number of, I think, Silicon Valley and American tech execs. What you just suggested might mean that it's, it's particularly keeping up the Google execs. I mean, if, if they're moving implicitly or explicitly into search, does that suggest to you, Michael, that, and people have been predicting this for years, but it never seems to have happened, that search itself will morph into some sort of broader entertainment category? Um, well, if you look at YouTube is already owned by Google is already creating um, short form video. Um, you, you already have the, the vertical video that you can go to on, on YouTube and it's in the middle of your feed. Um, it, it should keep people up at night because there's YouTube, it, it's, it's impacting the video viewing, but it's also the fact that it's a place that you can discover e-commerce, you can discover what to buy as well as you can search. And I, I, I mean, it's not the only force that should be keeping the Google and other companies up at night. I mean, look at Amazon, almost 50% of all e-commerce searches now begin on Amazon instead of on Google. So what we see is a world that people don't realize, they think it's over, it, it's very dynamic. It's extremely dynamic. You, nobody has one sort of situational asset that, that, that keeps them in place. One thing that I know is keeping senior Google people up at night is the imminent a Supreme Court case on Section 230. Google uh, Google uh, is actually appearing. They're, 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 they are um, they're being sued by someone who used YouTube to create a terrible tragedy around um, ISIS. Can you imagine regulation, particularly on Section 230, Michael, impacting media use over the next few years? Or is this something that seems to have always been brewing and never actually happened? It's, it's been brewing for a long time, and, and I think that that with um, with the change in um, in control of the House, I'm not sure that that we're going to see something that's going to lead to broad legislation. Um, but I think there's a bigger issue at play here, which is content moderation is going to become important. These companies can't wash their hands of saying anybody that's on our platform we don't control it. The reality is is that 
is that these platforms can be abused and um and 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 I do believe that it's critical for for companies to any of these major social media companies anybody that's that is leading people to to programming content editorial video that is um that that is could be subject to abuse um that the companies are m maintaining that monitoring Michael, we're almost halfway into the interview, and we haven't mentioned either Twitter or Elon Musk. We have to bring them both up. You talked oh, earlier on. about the party moving on from one social media site to another. Musk, of course, is always in the news, much of it out of choice, particularly in terms of his acquisition of Twitter and the drama of firing half the company and many other thousands of Twitter employees seeming to walk out on him. To what extent, though, is Musk's acquisition of Twitter and all the drama around it part of the party moving on, part of our different habits in media? Or is it just uh, an Elon Musk storm in a teacup? Uh, the, the, I, I don't think it's either. I think that there's, there's, some, there's some fundamental things that are happening, but I also think that it's set off a, a, a sort of domino effect of events that's going to end up hurting Twitter and making it less viable. First of all, audiences, Twitter usage has not been weighed down. In fact, it, it is not only is it episodic, but it continues to be a, a daily habit for people. Uh, the um, Twitter is become in, in a lot of ways it's become a place where there is there is a lot of material there's a lot of misinformation it's been used extensively for misinformation campaigns and it's also been used for data operations all heading to the wrong direction but the the bigger problem with what's happening today is that it's going to hurt advertising and so it doesn't it doesn't help by putting back controversial voices or, or even voices that are destructive, it may bring back users, but additional users without advertising um, are just additional cost. So the, the challenge is, is that advertisers are now scared. And advertisers buy on the web, they buy three things. They first of all buy effectiveness. In other words, is it going to help me sell my product? Is it going to turn into a sale? The second thing is they buy momentum. Is this, is this a property? Is it something that's, that's growing and it's on its way up? And the third they're buying is safety. And suddenly when you open the gates and you let, um, I mean, I'm reminded of that, that's the scene in Ghostbusters where the Titanic pulls back up into, um, in, in, into dock in New York and all of the sort of old ghosts get off of it. It's the same thing here. It's you suddenly bringing back all these old ghosts and you're going to scare away advertisers who don't want to be next to, to misinformation. They don't want to be next to anything that's unsafe for their brands. Jack Dorsey, who ran Twitter for a long time, was always hostile to the advertising business. Musk clearly is. He suggested that he's looking for alternative business models, which are primarily associated with users like you and I perhaps paying a certain amount right. each week to have some privilege or each month to have some privileges. Can media businesses, social media businesses like Twitter, can they survive and indeed prosper in a, in a post advertising economy, particularly since 
the advertising economy, given our fear of surveillance, is also under broader threat. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there, in this case, it's, it's hard to convert a group of people that have not been paying into paying. And in fact, the, if we look at music streaming, which is another business, but, but a good analogy, there's a large number of people that will never pay for music, which is why there is still an advertising supported um, stream on, on, certainly on Spotify. The, the challenge here is this has been available for free. People have not necessarily felt that there was something they needed to pay for. And it's going to be hard to, to flip the switch unless there's some significant additional benefit. I'm a big believer in freemium models with this base. There must be something else they can sell, but it may not necessarily be access to Twitter. The, uh, the, the other side of it, though, is that, is that will people pay for media and, 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 and tech? Absolutely. We're going to find a moment where, depending on on what it is, if people believe that it's something that's going to add value to them, look at the number of video streaming services that people are subscribing to. We forecast that within three years, each person is going to, on average, have six video streaming services. They're paying. So um, there are lots of places where people will pay. And there's lots of other places where they've been, they're giving access for free and free wins. Free wins. Uh, what about... And going back to the theme of tech economy this year, innovation must save the world. Lots of talk about public platforms of social media post Twitter, where no one owns the content it's distributed on a kind of web three principle without a center. Is that conceivable? What's your take, Michael, at Activate on the promises of web three, which to me and some of our recent guests seem somewhat utopian? I, I do think that they're utopian. I think that they're much farther out than, um, than when anybody would like to imagine. One thing to clarify is people talk about Web3 and Metaverse as the same thing. And if you look right. at Web3, Web3 is decentralized protocols, NFT, cryptocurrency, autonomous organizations. Metaverse is about experience. It's about it's about immersive experiences, immersive game-like experiences. It's about social. It's about you and I being in an environment and being able to interact in a totally different place in a different field. It's about building economies. It's about co-creation. It isn't just that we're together. It's like we are in Minecraft. We can build a model of a school and then people can graduate from it. And so people keep mixing the two things up. The way we look at it is Metaverse is more like a layer on top of Web3. When you really have these Web3 applications, it's like the browser for the internet. The internet existed, but nothing tamed it for a user until you had a browser. It's the other way around. We're going to start with Metaverse, and then people are going to, uh, they're going to see these Web3 technologies uh, as they develop much more through Metaverse. And a good example is Axie Infinity, which, um, which is a, which is like ultimately, um, it, it's a metaverse business. It's not necessarily one that's just focused on NFTs. Yeah, I wanted to bring up the metaverse. Lots of talk at uh, Techonomy this year on it. Most people somewhat skeptical, but less skeptical on the metaverse than on Web3. You talk about building the metaverse on top of Web3. It seems to me that the man betting most, the biggest believer in the metaverse is of course Mark Zuckerberg, who even changed his company 
to Meta. His vision, though, is building the metaverse on Web 2, isn't it? He's not really a Web 3 guy. I, I, I think that, that, that the most practical vision for the metaverse is Web 2. And I think that, that the, the proof of it is there are 300 million people already who are in metaverse virtual worlds. Between Roblox, Minecraft, you've got Fortnite and World of Warcraft. You have 300 million people unduplicated who are doing all of the metaverse things that I just mentioned. They're in immersive environments. They're, act, they're, they're doing things that are non part of the game that are social. They're building, they're creating, their economies. Um, and so that's already, that's already underway. That's, that's already happening. In terms of the vision of the metaverse being one that's 3D, um, our forecasts for, we've just put out our forecast for the sales of, of virtual reality and augmented reality. And we end up with three years from now, roughly 40 million units of both being sold. It's just that, that there's not going to be enough headsets out there for the metaverse to be a widespread experience through VR. The second part of it, by the way, is, is that most people today can't be in VR for more than 30 minutes per session. And so, but you can be on a game, you could spend 10 hours a day playing Minecraft. And so the, the vision of it being VR is it, it's really much it, it's it's really much more speculative and far off. I I, I don't think um, anybody should bet um, the future of their company on the expectation of selling VR headsets. When it comes to betting the future, people seem, at least in Silicon Valley, certainly to have given up on crypto. Surprise, surprise! Given the crash, the various crashes. Right. But the latest boom is in AI and in platforms like Dali, which use AI to generate content. Where are you on this, Michael? Do you believe that the Dali phenomenon is significant and might result in major new companies uh, to follow up on, on the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Googles of the world? Dali, of course, being owned by OpenAI, one of, um, one of the best financed startups in the Valley. Um. Look, we're, of course, we're going to see we're going to see something emerge from that. I, I I think we believe that the the first big applications are going to be much more about enterprise or prosumer that um, the real tools. But absolutely, new businesses will be created. But remember, we had dozens of search engines before there was a Google, and many of them were leading. We we I I, I don't know who's going to end up in uh, doing this, and I don't know what businesses are going to end up. We're already looking at which businesses will be impacted by AI, and at the same time, which new businesses will get created via AI. And we're um, the the important thing is now is the time for most companies to for sustained investment in AI to really be able to start figuring out its applications to their core, where they can go beyond, and what will do for their users overall, including businesses and and as importantly consumers. Yeah, we had Gary Marcus on the show last week, one of America's leading AI thinkers and entrepreneurs. He's been made it very clear, very unimpressed with the, the, this first generation of AI platforms. It sounds to me as if you're in, in the Marcus camp. And we haven't seen the Google yet of AI. No. And, and, and we, some of this comes down to use cases. And we've got to figure out what's the use case. What is it that's going to truly make somebody, uh, what will truly make AI 
useful for somebody and it changes it changes their lives. Many of the I applications- can imagine it though. I can imagine it, Michael, um, as a creator, an AI platform that will allow me to make movies, write books, do music, using my own originality, my own humanity, but at the same time, not requiring a studio, not requiring cameraman, and not requiring the hundreds of hours, for example, that it, need, it, it traditionally requires to write a book. Yeah, it's, I, I, I'm skeptical because my whole career, people have, have shown me, said that they had a formula for how to make a hit movie, how to make a hit TV show, how to write a book. We talked about content farms most recently. There was a lot of discussion around that. I, I think that where AI becomes important is you're in these interactive, virtual interactive worlds like metaverses, and suddenly you're interacting with other, with other people and, um, and, and people who aren't real. You, you want to be able to interact with, with others, and you want there to be much more of a response than just accomplished by machine learning. Do I believe that this is going to be a major new, new wave that will replace creators? Probably not. Um, let's, I think that let's end, Michael, with a return to this question that David asked at Techonomy 22 about innovation saving the world. We've done many, many shows on media literacy. Uh, we did one earlier this week with Alison Butler, the media and me, about educating people about truth. Do you believe that that is the great challenge for digital media to, to figure out how, if not to educate people, to distinguish propaganda and untruth from truth, to save democracy, to educate? And if that's the case, what are you seeing uh, that might actually result in innovation helping save the world, save American democracy? A great deal of it is around communication. And the more um, open we can keep the world, the more that there's communication, the better. All you have to do is look at the role the telegram has played um, in Ukraine and Russia in terms of informing people what's going on in the world. Messaging is the dominant digital behavior globally. Three and a half billion people are in messaging. So the, the more that people have access, they can interact, the more that they can be informed, the better the world. And, and with that comes more education, more literacy, more information, the better informed people are, the better that they can do in terms of every one of society's ills, whether it's, whether it's um, literacy, it's, um, it's hunger, it's medical, um, that's where I believe that the, the huge impact of technology will, will, will save the world. And I think, of course, it's in, it's in, in the environment. It, it starts with, though, people being inter able to interact and have information. Yeah, I take your point on messaging. But the, the point of messaging, one-to-one uh, -one messaging, is there's a degree of trust. We know who's messaging us and we trust right. them. The problem with going from a one-to-one -one messaging system to something like Twitter is that we don't always trust or, or, or can't know how to trust the user. So are you suggesting that the way to enable media to help save the world is to somehow turn the one-to-one -one messaging into a broader platform, which is also trustworthy? I, 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 there are two issues here. One is absolutely. Uh, already we can have hundreds of thousands of people in 
telegram groups or or and but but I also think the other issue is is identity. And today we don't know who's we don't know it's the internet. We go into a metaverse environment. We don't know who's there. We don't know who's in a game. Finding ways of of establishing and and verifying identity number one and ensuring that not only is it identified but that we, it can be it can be permissioned. In other words, not not allowing um, and 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 the hard part of that when you move to decentralized platforms, it's it's very difficult. Even centralized platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and others are having trouble uh, with verifying people's identity. So, so we're we're down the road. We got a long way down the road to being able to get this, make these things happen. But I do believe that providing people access, providing people the ability to talk with one another, but at the same time making sure that you can verify and permission identity becomes critical in this. Otherwise, it's just another source of misinformation and data operations ended for, for to, to really bad ends. You're going to be outraging the libertarians watching this show, Michael, suggesting that the only way to fix everything is to ensure identity, which is essentially to do away with anonymity. Is anonymity the biggest problem of all? And if we can get rid of that, then we can fix media and fix the world. I, I don't think it's anonymity that's the issue. I think that the real issue, if you think about about the problems we've had, it's 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 not fake. It's 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 not fake news. It's fake friends, and so I don't know who's who. I'm the voices I'm hearing um, on Twitter. I don't know who I'm interacting with on Facebook. I really don't know who they are, um, and and yet they they have the ability to have an influence on me when I don't when when I don't have a clue who they are. It's very different. If they're identified, and so I, I, I don't, I think it's hard to imagine that. Yes, there's going to be lots of debate around this, but, but ultimately, these are forces that can be for good. And if and being able, we've got large companies who are worth hundreds of billions of dollars in in these areas, and they, and it's their responsibility to fix it. They're responsible to shareholders, but they're also responsible to their users.